Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, the sociologist and political scientist Rene Rojas will explain the roots of the social explosion we've seen in Chile over the last couple of weeks. Is neoliberalism dying in the country where it was born? And then the development economist Ingrid Harvold von Graven will explain the work of the three economists who won the Nobel Prize for their constricted hyper-empirical research in poor countries. First, Chile. On October 1st, the authorities announced an increase in the fare in the Santiago metro. It was a small rise, in the order of 4%, but the fare was already quite high, and it set off a wave of student-led protests that have grown into a mass uprising. Metro stations and buses were burned, and over a million people poured into the streets to say they've had enough. What they've had enough of was no small matter. Decades of brutal neoliberalism instituted with the coup against elected President Salvador Allende in 1973, a coup led by General Augusto Pinochet. Pinochet, with the intellectual assistance of reactionary economists trained at the University of Chicago and other U.S. universities, imposed Chicago's dream of a regime, privatizing everything, cutting social benefits to the bone, and letting capital have its way. Pinochet ruled until 1990 and was succeeded by a series of governments that applied a softer version of the neoliberal agenda, but with no serious departure. The mass of Chileans has lived with austerity and insecurity for nearly five decades. It's that which a 4% increase in subway fares set off weeks of dramatic protest against. The fare increase was reversed, but the protests haven't stopped. Chilean President Sebastián Piñera, whose brother José was one of the principal architects of Pinochet's counter-revolution, has been forced to cancel two high-profile conferences that were scheduled to be held in the country in the coming months, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Trade Forum and the COP25 Climate Summit. Here to tell us what it all means is René Rojas, who's a visiting assistant professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and who teaches in the Human Development Department at Binghamton University. René Rojas. What's been happening in Chile? It's just an absolute social eruption there. Can you describe what's been happening and, and what set it off? Yeah, I, what, what's happened in Chile, I think, is, as you said, uh, a, a veritable eruption, uh, really a, an uncontainable rebellion, right, social rebellion that started off as an explosion of rage and class hatred, right, and hostility toward um, economic and political elites, and it was somewhat, you know, uncontainable, just out of control. And it's, uh, I think, morphed into an escalating set of mass mobilizations demanding uh, deep social and political. I mean, the political art is very important in social and political reforms. Now, what, what set things off was an announced hike in Santiago, the capital's uh, subway fares. Um, this happened at the be beginning of the month. It was a small increase considering the, the, the base rate, right, which is already one of the highest in, in Latin America. And in fact, it wasn't going to affect students. Yet students took the initiative, um, as they have been in this kind of uh, more recent period of the resurgence of mass protests in Chile. Um, and they organized a series of what they're calling mass evasions, right? Just kind of coordinating these moments where uh, by the thousands, they would jump turnstiles, right? And it became fairly disruptive in Santiago subway stations. And after two weeks of that, the police responded with a fairly heavy hand. This happened now uh, about a week and a half ago. And that was really the, the last straw, kind of the, the last drop that just blew the roof off of this illusion of Chile as this free market poster child, this economic miracle 
right? And things shifted from a, a student, a set of student mass actions and civil disobedience into the, the social rebellion. People responded by uh, burning down half of Chile's subway stations, by targeting these large supermarkets, these superstores, many of them owned by Walmart. I think around 100 of them were targeted for arson and looting. And there was a, a weekend where the people literally expressed their this uncontainable rage against their situation. And what's really behind that is uh, growing inequality on the one hand. Chilean elites, you know, have a standard of living that that parallels, you know, Western Europe or even the American standard of living. But the other half, poor people in Chile, 40 percent of the working population, for instance, works in the informal sector. Um, they live in, in Central American type material conditions. And so it, it's been 30 years of a model that has uh, reproduced and deepened this inequality um, that was behind it. And at the same time, a sense that regular working people and the, you know, this kind of half of Chile that, that struggles to get by has no political voice, no political influence. In other words, that the democratic regime that was restored after the dictatorship essentially has become an oligarchy. The president, uh, Piñera, tell us about him. Well, Piñera is, you know, a center-right politician. Chile, since the return uh, to democracy in 1990, right, has its politics have been dominated by the center-left, which has been hegemonic and has ruled for most of this period, most of the past 30 years, and the center-right. The center-right essentially is a recomposition of the Pinochet coalition, the old hard right and sectors of business elites and the professional elite that are uh, liberals, classical liberals, um, you know, in, in our in today's parlance, uh, neoliberal, have a neoliberal kind of outlook. And so Piñera was first elected, uh, actually, in 2010. He won his first elections. And this was after 20 years of, of government by the center left, where people were really frustrated by this kind of ongoing and deepening inequality, a deepening of the of the neoliberal model. And so that opened up an opportunity for the, the right to win the elections. That was 2010. Um, his his first administration was racked by what now in retrospect is was the resurgence of mass protests, particularly the student movement of 2011. And so his coalition was not reelected. In fact, the center-left, led by the socialist President Michel Bachelet, returned to power, and essentially was more of the same. And so, in two thousand, in the two thousand seventeen elections, amid all this popular frustration and discontent, and the emergence of of a new, more radical left-wing alliance, Piñera was able to win the elections again and return to power. Now, Piñera is one of Chile's new oligarchs, right? This new class of super wealthy that were able to, to become this this wealthy um, during the privatizations under the dictatorship from 1973 to, to 1989 under the rule of Pinochet. In fact, he has very close ties to the transformations that took place during that period. And the people who were leading those transformations, his brother, Jose Piñera, is really one of the architects 
of uh, Chile's neoliberal transformations, and then the legal and institutional apparatus, which was put in place by by the dictatorship, and which the which is still in place today, the Constitution, for instance, of 1980, and which both his coalition, the center right coalition, and the center left coalition have essentially adopted and managed the country under. These um, oligarchs, um, did they get sweet deals and privatization? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the the big transformations that occurred under the dictatorship, right? I think you could you could think of it in two ways. One of the things, the central things that the dictatorship did, of course, was to smash the workers' movements and left-wing organizations and political parties, obviously. But the other thing it did is transform the structural underpinnings of the economy. And part of that platform was dismantling, right, the publicly supported industries and manufacturing complexes that had um, been built up over the the middle part of the 20th century and privatizing what was left. And, you know, folks who had these political connections were able to take advantage of them and basically overnight become multimillionaires and billionaires. And uh, the the center left that you talked about, I'm guessing that there are center left on the model that we've seen many places elsewhere of these sort of respectable social democratic parties who uh, governed pretty much in accordance with market principles and didn't really deliver anything uh, to uh, the population. Is that the kind of uh, approach they've had? That's exactly the approach they've had. It's interesting because one of the pillars of the center-left coalition, one of the mainstays, is the Socialist Party, which was Salvador Allende's party, you know, the president elected in 1970 to to democratically institute socialism in Chile. But over the course of the uh, late 70s and the 80s, these political sectors underwent a deep transformation in their in their ideologies and in their programmatic kind of proposals. So that by the time the transition to democracy came about, right, they had completely renovated, <laughs> as, as um, we say in Chile, and they had become committed to free market economies, uh, deregulation with some tweaking of the edges to put a human face on on the, the, the kind of brutal neoliberalism they inherited from the dictatorship. And, and so since they won the elections, the first elections, and came to power in 1990, all the way through uh, Bachelet's second term, which was from 2014 to 2018, they have remained solidly committed to this program, this the, these sets of policies. And part of that is because Part of the transformation that they underwent was not just ideological, right? They actually transformed their ties to social sectors and their new constituents became uh, professional elites and business elites. I mean, they developed very, very close links to this new oligarchy in Chile and basically ruled on, on their behalf. You know, that's not to say that under, for instance, Bachelet, uh, particularly in these last two administrations when they've been in power, the center-left, there haven't been some reforms. The center-left has been a little more sensitive to and responsive to the mass mobilizations that have been reemerging. But again, every time they propose and pursue a reform, it's always within the constraints of the neoliberal model. In your article in Jacobin, you say that 
per capita GDP in Chile is like $16,000, equivalent to $16,000 US dollars. But uh, the broad population sees nothing like $16,000, right? Oh, that, that's right. Chile has really turned into this country of the mass disparities, right? Um, and those on the wrong side of that balance sheet, uh, you know, the vast majority of working people are barely getting by. Minimum wage in Chile is around $400. And huge swaths of the population don't even make that. That's, that's per month. Uh, per month. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Per, per month. And, and with the cost of living, again, that's somewhat reflected in that GDP per capita figure that you gave, right? You can see how that, that barely is enough to even uh, meet basic needs like food and housing. Um, the elderly are in a particularly precarious situation, and this is partly due to the fact that the pension system was privatized under the dictatorship, and that system has been um, not only maintained but reinforced over the years under center-left rule. Let's talk a bit more about the pension system. This is one of the headline things for which uh, the Pinochet regime is known, and you know, it's the model for the world, uh, supposedly. Uh, the army, of course, kept its own public pension system. But what what does everyone else? Uh, uh, how does everyone else cope? What is it like? Well, around 1980, um, you know, this is where where people like Pineda's brother and these other Chicago boys were given the reins to uh, public policy, right? Um, there was a, a dramatic shift from a public pension system to these um, private pension funds in Chile called AFP, um, AFPs. Um, where people were essentially forced into switching over, right, to these uh, financial portfolios and these private companies that manage these funds. What's happened is that on top of the the gross, right, administrative costs, <laughs> essentially these, these pension funds just skimming off the top and enriching themselves um, for doing basically nothing for speculating with people's money. Um, what's happened is that the transformations in the labor market and in employment patterns in Chile meant that, you know, just vast majorities of people, of working people, I should say, were never able to contribute in sufficient amounts and over sufficient number of years. So what's happened is that when people reach retirement age, they just haven't been able to pay into these privatized pension funds, right, um, the amounts that are necessary to sustain anything near a dignified uh, retirement. I'm speaking with the sociologist and political scientist, Rene Rojas. And now these protests, how organized are they and what is the political complexion of them? Are, are people have organization and ideology or is this just a kind of a spontaneous uh, uh, expression of rage? Well, it, it depends. I, I think the first kind of expressions of this this were spontaneous rage. And it's beyond, it's hard to really communicate just how much hostility people felt. You know, the one analogy I've used, it's kind of like a slave rebellion, right? Where things, you know, people just have just had it and um, absent any channels for regular participation, a real voice and say, a, a real say, sorry, in, 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 in policy discussions, um, and in governance, people just lash out and want to destroy everything in, in, in their path. That was the first thing that happened in Chile. Now, today, the government is saying that there are these 
organized mafias behind this. That's not that's just not true at all. It was it was poor people who have had who had had it right and were this was their way of expressing their their resentment and frustration. That again spontaneous, not organized, and doesn't even um, isn't communicating a coherent set of demands. Right now, that's the first part. However, since then things have have been evolving into a set of ongoing and escalating mass mobilizations, right? And those actions, those um, mass protests have been more organized. After that first weekend of looting and again, mass fury, right? That to, the following Tuesday, sections of labor, some of the most important unions, for instance, the dock workers, miners, teachers and other public sector workers, along with this movement of retirees asking for a renationalization of the pension system and other mass movements such as, um, you know, green movements and uh, the feminist movement, which has been kind of recharged in Chile, they called for a national strike. And a lot of the frustration and this pent up discontent is now being channeled into these more organized and coherent mass demonstrations, right? But they still lack a, a very clear set of demands and a clear set of strategies and tactics. And that's because there is no political organization yet capable of leading this movement. But that's, of course, the result of deliberate policies, going back to Pinochet, of like depoliticizing the population, right? Yeah, and not just depoliticizing the population, but you know this, these underlying structural transformations fragmented labor. It atomized people, and of course, unions were crushed, and left-wing parties were were smashed as well through you know using uh, state violence and in, in the most brutal and murderous ways um, imaginable. Um, so yeah, so that is not it's not by accident that today you have this you know, a, a social manifestation of discontent uh, on a mass level, right? But you don't have the articulated set of political organizations that, that can really lead it. That's not to say that there isn't a left in Chile today. And there aren't sectors of, there aren't political sectors that are making the same demands as the mass movement. Um, there are two formal lefts in Chile, um, the old Communist Party, right, which re-emerged with more energy and some key politicians after the, the mass student mobilizations of 2011. And what I mentioned earlier, this new leftist alliance in Chile called the Frente Amplio or the Broad Front, right, which um, in the for the 2017 elections got 20 percent of, of, of the vote. That left also emerged out of the mass student mobilizations of eight years ago now, but they're trying to recreate a radical pull outside of this dual coalition um, arrangement that has dominated Chilean politics uh, for 30 years now. And what kind of relations are there between the students and the broader working class? Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, on the one hand, the student movement Right. It, it's ebbed and flowed since 2016, but it's it, it, you can always count on it to be reactivated and remobilized because it's it's played such a leading role. 
right, in mass protest since then, it has developed close ties to other mass movements in labor, the, the environmentalist and, and the feminist movement, which I mentioned earlier. The thing is, the, the student movement also spawned this new leadership cadre, right? Um, some of whom went into the Communist Party, where they'd always been young communists, right? And some of them formed this new uh, broad front. And that's where the problem lies. Between that cadre of new leaders and new organizers and the mass movements, there are very tenuous ties at the moment. I just saw this uh, sign uh, making rounds in the social media. Uh, Neoliberalism was born in Chile and it will die in Chile. Is that, uh, <laughs> is that too optimistic? Well, it, it may be, but it is the sentiment on the street right now. You know, we, I said that these escalating protests, right, that have been massive. I'm sure your listeners uh, are well aware that um, last Friday, right, there was a call to go out to the street in not only in response to the original grievances, but also in response to these relief measures that were really, really insignificant and, and really an insult, you know, to mobilize people. But these these measures for relief that the Pineda's government had announced, right? And the call was heeded just by an enormous amount of people. One between a million and a million and a half uh, people showed up to the streets in uh, Santiago, a city of seven million people, and there were mass marches throughout the country that day. So. What I wanted to say was that whereas the conclusion that this signals, right, the death or the, the burial of neoliberalism in, in Chile might be too optimistic, what is clear is that that is what the people are demanding. In spite of the fact that the grievances and the, and the demands, right, haven't cohered into a clear set of demands, underlying the rage and underlying the discontent that keeps fueling these mass mobilizations is a recognition by working people that Chile has to move away from this kind of orthodox neoliberalism. Right now, I think what's most promising is that the demand for a constituent assembly is is taking shape and is taking hold not only on the streets, but you, you see signs of this in, in parliament already. And I think that's the way to do it. That's what people are feeling, that we have to not only legislate social reforms, we actually have to refound the state and reorganize ruling institutions, re, re, recreate, I should say, ruling institutions in Chile. And that must be done through a constituent process. And the result of that should be a constitution that guarantees certain universal social rights. Finally, we've got, we're seeing an explosion around the world, many countries around the world, you know, Lebanon, Hong Kong, Chile, of course. Is something going on here that's of global significance? That's, it's hard. I think it's too early to tell. I will confine myself to, to the region of the world that I know the best, which is Latin America, um, and trying to, to, you know, offer some kind of insight into this, this question. At least in Latin America, I think what we're experiencing right now is uh, this, like the second major crisis, political crisis, of the neoliberal order. What you're seeing throughout the region is elites can't guarantee stable rule on the, the, the basis of neoliberal 
policy in neoliberal economic governance. And so what you're seeing in Latin America, the first, you know, is the second one of these major or, or signs of a major collapse of the neoliberal political order. Right. The first one of these spawned what we now you know, know as the pink tide, these kind of um, left populist reform governments in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in Argentina and in Bolivia. Well, I think now we're, we're experiencing elites are experiencing a second major challenge to their ability to manage neoliberalism in a stable way. And it's and I think it's being manifested in very, very different ways in Chile. Right. Because you had this kind of ossification of this oligarchic system, this sharing of power between the center left and the center right, it's taking the form of this explosion, of the social explosion, right? But you see other signs of it. For instance, um, obviously people are paying attention to what's happening in, in Bolivia. Uh, the recent mass mobilizations in Ecuador received a lot of uh, attention, correctly so. Right. But I think what happened recently in the electoral arenas in Brazil and Mexico are also an expression of this crisis of neoliberal uh, legitimacy. OK. Now, the, the question, of course, is what comes next? <laughs> well, it's really hard to tell. No one imagined, first of all, that after being beat down so, so, so brutally. Right. And after ha seeing their organizations smashed and seeing uh, the population in Chile uh, fragmented by uh, the adoption of, of neoliberalism and restructuring of, of social and economic relations. No one could have imagined even the the first wave of uh, mass protests that occurred um, now over a week ago. Much less could we have imagined that the mobilizations would continue, right, would endure so long and pick up more and more steam. So I think things are wide open now in Chile. It's hard to to, to predict really um, what will come of this. I, I think one thing is for sure. Elites, governing elites, the political class across the board heard the message. And they know they have to make some concessions or else that fury, that class hatred and rage will just sweep them all away sooner rather than later. So the, for them, the, the, the game right now becomes, okay, how can we pitch a set of reforms that offer some relief that looks good, but doesn't touch the fundamentals of the model, right? And that's what you're seeing across the board. It's a little more restricted in the center right. In the center left, um, even the Christian Democrats, right, which is really the center of Chilean politics, have started talking about the possibility of a constituent process, right? But for them, what they want is to manage that as well and really have it look like a parliamentary process of amending the constitution rather than opening up things to a popular and democratic assembly where people's representatives and representative, direct representatives, representatives of these uh, of labor and of these new mass movements redraw you know, our charter they want to control the process as much as possible. And of course, on the other side, on the street and, um, you know, in terms of what the what uh, the leading sectors of labor and these new mass movements are asking for, they're asking precisely for what I just described, a very radical redrawing of the Constitution that requires 
a, an open constituent assembly um, where all of the decision-making power goes there and is is taken away from Congress and the political parties that have you know ruled Chile and have gotten us into this terrible situation. That was Rene Rojas, a visiting assistant professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. You can find his article on Chile on the Jack Gibbon Magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the fourth movement of Bartók's String Quartet No. 4, performed by the Veg, is that how to pronounce it? I'm not up in my Hungarian. Quartet. Next, development economics and the Nobel Prize. On October 14th, the yearly prize, whose real name is the Bank of Sweden Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, since it wasn't part of Nobel's original bequest, was awarded to three researchers who made their name doing very focused empirical work. They're Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, both of MIT, and Michael Kramer of Harvard. And their innovation has been to take a technique drawn from medical research, the Randomized Controlled Trial, or RCT, to find out what works. For this, they're sometimes nicknamed the Randomistas. As the press release accompanying the award put it, this year's laureates have introduced a new approach to obtaining reliable answers about the best ways to fight global poverty. In brief, it involves dividing the issue into smaller, more manageable questions. For example, the most effective interventions for improving educational outcomes or child health. They have shown that these smaller, more precise questions are often best answered via carefully designed experiments among the people who are most affected. That's the end of the quote. As with the trial of a new drug, the experimental population is divided into two groups, one of which gets the treatment and one of which doesn't. At the end of the trial, you compare and contrast to see if you've come up with anything useful. Of the three, Duflo has acquired something of a celebrity status, in part because she's a woman in such a male-dominated field and therefore something of a curiosity. She was the subject of a fawning profile in The New Yorker in 2010. The Economics Nobel was established in 1968 with a grant from the Swedish Central Bank, the world's oldest, to the Nobel Foundation, and was first awarded in 1969. It's often viewed as an attempt by the bank to push back against Swedish social democracy and promote right-wing free market economics. Evidence for this is that the great left-wing economist Joan Robinson never got the award, but Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and a host of lesser lights around them did. Like them or not, Hayek and Friedman at least ask some big questions. This year's trio of laureates don't. They're all about the little stuff. Here's the development economist Ingrid Harvold von Graven, an assistant professor at the University of York in Britain, with more. She has an article on this prize on the Open Democracy website. Ingrid von Graven. 
These three nobilists work together. Uh, they uh, have uh, pioneered a form of uh, experimental economics. Could you describe what the, the nature of their work is? They conduct these randomized control trials, RCTs, which is um, taken from studies in medicine, really, uh, where they target specific interventions to a randomly selected group. So it could be a school or a village or a class or mothers or something like that. And then they compare how uh, specific outcomes change in the recipient group versus those that didn't receive the treatment. Um, so those interventions could be something about like combating t- teacher absenteeism or the impact of the cash transfer, uh, stimulating positive thinking. There's a range of different kinds of policies that the laureates have attested the impact of, basically. So what they're really looking at is the effect of a treatment on a group. It seems like the kinds of questions they ask are very, very small. Yes. In a way, it's very much to be expected that they won this prize because this is a development that um, we've seen in development economics since the early 80s, that there's been this movement towards uh, answering smaller questions, the field answering smaller questions. So in the 60s and 70s, there were these big debates, debates between structuralists and Marxists and developmentalists, as well as neoclassical economists. But since the 80s, it's really been narrowed down to mostly neoclassical and mostly to do with the interventions that have to do with poverty alleviation rather than structural transformation. So in a sense, you know, that's unfortunate for the field because these big questions are really important. And the big questions are important to understand why we have so much poverty in the world. But it's really, in a way, their their research is a symptom of the, the way the field has been developing. There seems to be uh, draining uh, politics uh, and values, actually, out of out of these lines of inquiry. Um, this seems like a very apolitical, technocratic thing to do, and I can understand why rich people might like that kind of uh, approach <laughs> to the field. Yeah, I think you're right in many ways that they um, abstracting from politics, they abstract from politics and from society, from relations within society, and just look at the effects of specific policies. Um, and uh, adding to that. They, they're not just um, studying these interventions, the effects of these interventions in order to understand the world better. They have the stated aim of providing evidence-based policy. Uh, and they have a very specific view of what that means, which I think also fits with your um, comment about it being kind of depoliticized, because they're attempting to provide policies that, um, that um, politicians or governments can implement, abstracted from the political processes in, within those countries. I mean, no one's against evidence-informing policy, uh, but there are lots of other important ways that policies are determined other than through evidence, right? So uh, there could be political demand for certain policies through social mobilization. And uh, that's, you know, it's hard to say that that's not, that's not more valid or equally valid as some evidence that's, um, that's come out through a randomized control trial that's conducted by usually researchers from the global north. So yeah, there is some this abstraction from the political realities and power uh, at play. Well, the, the trajectory of uh, development economics you described uh, went from um, asking very big questions from different perspectives, but asking very big questions uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, to um, a much narrower focus in the 80s onward. I mean, that uh, parallels the, the growth of, of, of neoliberal economics and the attempt to withdraw the state from certain aspects of economic development. Is, is, is this just a reflection of what's been going on in the larger world of politics? Yeah, I, in many ways, yes. I would say yes and no. 
uh, because, of course, um, you can't abstract from the political interests. And even academia, of course, is very, very um, uh, affected by the politics in which, um, which it exists. And there's been massive funding for new classical economics, of course, um, uh, by uh, libertarians and um, neoliberal institutions. So uh, neoclassical neo economics has gotten this boost. And that's, of course, very political. Um, but at the same time, uh, it gets tricky because when you discuss with people that are in the mainstream, uh, a lot of them are actually, you know, against neoliberalism. They're on the left. <laughs> so it's um, it's not like I don't think, you know, Esther Duflo, Abit Banerjee and Michael Kramer believe in free markets. They recently had a, an op-ed in The New York Times where they're talking about how, um, you know, taxing the rich is important and social safety nets. So it's not so black and white that all the neoclassical economists are promoting neoliberalism, but of course the funding of, of neoclassical research and mainstream economic research is very political. So yeah, I, I think there's definitely there's definitely a connection, but it's not always that easy to to identify it. Let's talk a bit about some of their uh, specific work. One of the more famous uh, studies is uh, of teacher absenteeism. Could you do, describe that? Yeah. So um, one of them. Uh, that study is quite famous, I guess. And so what they do um, is they have, of course, they have a treatment and the control group. And in the treatment group, they want to test, you know, what can we do to get teachers to actually show up to work? And the policy that they come up with to, um, to encourage teachers to come to work is to have a class picture taken at the beginning of every school day. So, you know, then it would be very obvious if a teacher wasn't in the class picture. And they find that actually taking this picture at the beginning of every, of every school day encourages teachers to come to work. So that's, I mean, like, yeah, an example of the kind of questions that they, that they ask. It's a very obvious kind of question. You know, if someone asked me or even, um, I don't know, a high school student, you know, what they think the effect would be, they might be able to predict that outcome. Um, so it's not always that the, um, that the studies actually give us particularly new or relevant insights. But teacher absenteeism, most public school teachers show up for work every day. I mean, is, what what yeah. questions are they not asking in this approach? Yeah, that's, yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that question because there's no, they're not addressing underpay of teachers or the underfunding of the education system. We've seen in developing countries, and I mean, actually not just in developing countries, right, and in, in developed countries as well, um, this, you know, push for austerity and defunding of the education system which has severe impacts on the, on the quality of education and on the access, access to education. So there are serious underlying issues that lead to problems like teacher absenteeism that I really don't think can be fixed by, you know, taking a picture at the beginning of every school day. Yeah, as you, you write the piece, they're not at all interested in questions about the effects of austerity on, uh, on public education systems in poorer countries. They don't, uh, yeah. they don't really look at that, right? No, uh, not really. I mean, there might be some, I mean, it's not like no mainstream economist looks at austerity. Uh, you know, that would be a mischaracterization. But the gold standard, as they call it, which is this randomized control trial approach, um, directs our attention to these smaller, uh, more manageable questions, as the Nobel Committee called it, smaller, more manageable questions. So which actually uh, force us to look away from the, the underlying problems. I have to admit, I have never read any of uh, the uh, academic work that they've written, but I did read the New Yorker profile of Duflo. It came out in 2010. 
And in there, uh, she's quoted as saying, uh, if a policy doesn't make the pie bigger, you cannot say unambiguously it is a good policy. What are their measures of good and bad? What kind of values do they bring to this work? Well, it's a very economistic approach, definitely uh, focusing on quantifying and growing, right? Rather than, you know, there's no recognition of rights, for example, and that characterization that you gave of her statement. So in that sense, yeah, the values, I guess, are about growth and that can be quantified. But um, having said that, I mean, I don't know if all of their work actually does focus on making the pie bigger. A lot of it is more about just tackling the fact that the pie is small, in a way, the fact that people are poor. Um, So just making things a little bit better or more comfortable, uh, incentivizing people to uh, act in a certain way, um, which doesn't necessarily lead to growth at all, but it might lead to, you know, slightly slight improvements in people's lives. I'm speaking with the development economist Ingrid Harvold von Graven. You quote uh, Nala Kabir uh, as saying that uh, their work is uncritically informed by neoclassical microeconomic theory. Uh, What do you mean by that? Or what does she mean by that? Yeah, great question. And I think it was important for me to put that in the the piece because a lot of the time their work is presented as just purely empirical, which of course it isn't. Um, It's very clear in their work that they draw on neoclassical theory. And so it's a little bit about what I said before about assuming that actors are rational and the markets are perfect. And building on this, so when I say neoclassical, I mean like in the history of thought sense where it's not just that uh, actors are rational and markets are perfect, but it's kind of the next step where the question becomes, why aren't markets perfect? You know, what, why might market markets fail sometimes? Uh, and why aren't people rational? And then, you know, the fact that like a lot of neoclassical economists were seeing in the 80s that you know, market fail was happening all the time and that people weren't rational. So this is kind of the background where the laureates came in and um, started testing policies to see how they could correct for market failure. Um, so I just thought that was important to say because a lot of economists don't agree with this definition of neoclassical economics. They think that's just you know rational behavior and optimizing uh, optimizing agents in perfect markets, but really it's also this focus on imperfections. So Nyla Kabir has done quite a lot of work, both, I mean, her own independent work on uh, women empowerment and feminist economics, but she's also engaged quite a, quite a bit with Duplo, who is one of the laureates. And um, she, as a feminist economist, you know, she sees how women struggle and often together to fight for their rights. And in her review that I linked to, she points to how Duflo approaches gender, which is basically by looking at women um, separate from the societies in, in which they exist and how they're optimizing, you know, their own utility. Um, which misses the larger struggles that women go through, uh, and it misses also how they situate themselves within uh, within society and what impact that has on how they act and their agency. Um, so uh, I could have also quoted Julie Nelson, I think, um, who talks about the mushroom man, and that's like a characterization of how individuals are in the neoclassical framework, that they just spring up and they haven't been socialized um, their preferences don't depend on society. Um, so feminist economists, including Naila Kabir, criticize this as being an extremely inaccurate and unhelpful um, characterization of how humans actually behave. How generalizable are these findings? For example, you know, you find at one school in India or several schools in India that, you know, if you take the teacher's picture at the beginning of the day, they'll, they'll show up. Do we know that, for example, that might work in Brazil? 
as well, or um, since they you know they seem not to be uh, curious about how things are embedded in larger social systems. But also, you know, what does that tell us about education policy generally? I mean, we just have a very, very narrow um, question and answer addressed here. But uh, what does that tell us about how to educate people um, under uh, often very difficult conditions? Yeah, so this is a big question. And I would say, and a lot of critics would say that, you know, those, these studies tell us very, very little about what we need to do about education policy. Because education policy has to do with so much more than just getting teachers to show up. Uh, on time and to actually show up. You know, there are big questions that have to do with how we how we organize the education system that are also specific to circumstances. And um, in addition, there's this lack of, so the economists in the economic external validity, uh, whether a result in one place in Kenya, for example, can be uh, transported and if it's likely to have, if the intervention is likely to have a similar effect in Brazil, as you mentioned, it depends on yeah whether the whether it's externally valid and that's something that the mainstream has been working on a little bit like they do acknowledge that it's not a given that um, that that the policy could be either scaled up or you know implemented elsewhere but at the same time although they acknowledge it I mean it's very hard to argue that that there is any external validity because uh, they tend to not look at the mechanisms since as I mentioned it's these interventions and they look at the effects. So they don't even know why a policy works um, in the specific place that they're looking at. And if they don't know why, then it's very difficult to, to know, have any idea about whether it will work in another place. So, and also these effects, they're not separate from the societies in which they, these individuals that they're looking at operate. And RCTs, they don't really help us understand much about those societies. So to know if something is transferable to another location we need to make a broader assessment about the societies and why certain interventions were successful. And RCTs just don't really allow us to do that. And then there's some um, ethical issues here, right? Uh, basically, basically, this is a form of human experimentation, which is always <laughs> rich with problems. So uh, w- what about these ethical issues? Yeah. So in the medical literature, which, I mean, they're drawing on this method from the medical literature. And in there, they have extensive they do extensive work on ethics and the potential harm to subjects is taken very very seriously in uh, economics literature is much less so which is worrying because you're still experimenting on people it's true that most of the time it's not you know giving medicines or stuff like that but it's still instrumentalizing people and it's not a given that it's um, going to have a positive effect on those people you know sometimes it might lead to a certain policy being implemented uh, later on, and those people might benefit. But most of the time, it's some researcher going in, writing a paper, and then it'll have maybe some impact on a larger scale, but, but you don't know. So it is instrumentalizing people. A, lo- a lot of the experiments might include lying, for example, because you don't want people to know that they're a part of an experiment, because that might ruin the experiment. It's also the issues of these foreigners going into developing countries, and the choice of who gets treatment and who doesn't. And there's been quite a lot of kind of dubious experiments. <laughs> They seem unethical in, in many cases, uh, also because they involve lying, right? So one, I think, kind of extreme example was this study that was published, uh, I think it was last year, not earlier this year. It was incentivizing student, university students in Hong Kong to participate in an anti-authoritarian protest. So it's like a very real political situation and that could potentially harm these students. 
what does this say about the politics of economics right now that the Nobel Committee awarded this prize? Does it say something about uh, where the field is at more generally? Yeah, it, absolutely it does. Um, it's, uh, I think the Nobel Prize generally tends to be a reflection of, um, of where the field is. And um, I think it is, I mean, it's at the height of this, what they call the empirical term, where they try to abstract from or make the argument that they're not using theory even though I think you know classical economics has become so hegemonic that uh, economists working within the field don't necessarily recognize that it is neoclassical they just call it economics right and then it's been become all about or mostly about testing what works uh, and there is this idea that you can see clearly and that there is a clear answer to that question what works and um, so um, doesn't take you know context into account much, and as we talked about already, abstracts from larger questions, uh, more systemic problems. For a while, uh, economics was being criticized for being so mathematized uh, and you know so lost in its abstract models that it lost touch with the real world. And this is so um, much the opposite in a way. It almost seems like an overcorrection. Yeah, yeah, and they and I mean they when they're faced with critique, they make this argument. That's because they're like, ah, oh, the critics are always saying that economics is too abstract, and now we're actually doing very empirical work, and we're still being critiqued. But yes, I mean, it's very empirical, but I do think that uh, it's a problem to try to argue that being very empirical is abstracted from ideology and, and theory, uh, because it is deep, the empirical work is deeply embedded in, in the theory that is, you know, what was being mathematized and, and discussed, and the, the abstract theories that were being developed uh, that we were criticizing in the past. So yes, I mean there there is it's more empirical, it's less abstract, but it's still embedded in the same theories um, that we've been criticizing for a long time. That was the development economist Ingrid Harvold von Graven, an assistant professor at the University of York in Britain. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this a bit of the finale from Shostakovich's Fourth Symphony, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy. The fourth, written in 1936, is a grand and sublime work that was the last in this high modernist style, before a conservative turn induced by the distinguished music critic Joseph Stalin, who didn't like all that noisy, dissonant stuff. Ironically, some writers have drawn a parallel between the grand scale of this symphony and the early USSR's development ambitions, but to get into the relationship between Shostakovich and Soviet socialism would be beyond the scope of a brief audio intro. Till next week, bye!